you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, the Cannes Film Festival declined to buy coronavirus insurance. Maybe that was a bad idea. Then the movie Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always follows a young woman trying to get an abortion. Filmmaker Eliza Hittman thought the story was better suited to drama than documentary. Because of the shame, I think it's hard to get documentary subjects to come forward about what their experiences are. And to me, the film puts a face to the subjects. And the Moth Storytelling Showcase goes bilingual. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. The coronavirus epidemic has forced the postponement or cancellation of concerts, conventions, and festivals around the globe. In France, the Cannes Film Festival is still scheduled to take place from May 12th to the 23rd. But recently, France has banned events attracting more than 1,000 people amid concerns about the epidemic. A TV conference in the same city on the French Riviera was canceled last week, and nearby Italy has essentially sealed its borders. Minori Ravindran is Variety's international editor. She joins us from London. Minori, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So is there any word yet that the Cannes Film Festival might be postponed or canceled or rescheduled? What's the latest? We are closely monitoring this. Um, It's still unclear. The Cannes Film Festival is being remarkably bullish about um, its prospects in the face of this global outbreak. Theory from O is very, very keen, we know, to go ahead with the festival and has been really downplaying um, the, the seriousness um, obviously, it's understandable. Cannes is really riding high, especially on the back of Parasite premiering at the festival last year and going on to win the Oscar. There was a, so much great momentum behind the festival this year. And for, for it to be sort of derailed by this global outbreak is really, I mean, understandable, but also it is sad. So they're, they're, they're trying to press on. Um, right now, I think what's happening is, um, you know, a lot of organizers are in touch with the local authorities and the local prefects, as they're called, um, to think of ways in which they can organize, reorganize the, the um, structure of the festival to kind of get around some of these uh, gathering bans, basically. Um, initially, it was uh, put at 5,000, but um, on Sunday night, the French health minister basically uh, reduced that to 1,000. So, so that really kind of um, started uh, ringing alarm bells, I think, for the festival and its, and its future this year. Well, the two issues are, one, the biggest venue at the Cannes Film Festival seats about 2,300 people. So I guess if they're going to be, you know, in step with the, with the uh, restrictions, they'd have to have about half the seats empty. And there's also the market, the Marche, which is attended by many more than 1,000 people. So how would they even get around the film market at Cannes, which is as heavily attended as the festival? 
they, you know, they'll, they'll probably count on a fair number of people not attending. So that probably would bring their numbers down. Um, but, you know, that's a that's a very, very real concern for them. And then, of course, there is the, the issue of, of talent, too. Um, you know, the Cannes Film Festival is so prominent because of the amazing red carpets and the, the glitz and glamour of, of all of those premieres. So to think that, you know, most of those stars and, and uh, you know, actors and directors and, and all the rest of it that they, that they, you know, might be afraid to travel. What exactly is Cannes without the, the talent piece? Um, obviously, as you said, the market is extremely important. So perhaps if there's a way for, for that to somehow be re-engineered and, and go on, perhaps people would. But I mean, even as of, as of today, we've been talking to, you know, um, international distributors, a lot of whom are saying, and sales agents who are saying, you know what, we're going to, we're going to sit it, you know, people are slowly starting to say, we're going to, perhaps said this out. So I think it's looking um, a little bit dire for them going forward, especially after our piece today and, and the revelations about the, the insurance. I think that's, that's fairly um, damaging, but given the, you know, they were approached as late as 10, 10 days ago, basically around this. So it's, it's quite, um, yeah, it's quite a problem, I think, for Ken right now. Well, let me ask you about the insurance. Your reporting says that about 10 days ago, the film festival declined coverage by its insurance company, Circle Group, that might have covered a epidemic, even though it had a chance. What would that insurance have covered? And since they declined it, are they really adrift at this point? It's really surprising that they that they did reject this uh, insurance offer, but certainly would have you know covered a lot of those uh, expenses in terms of um, I suppose venue rental and and uh, and all the other sort of affiliated costs. I think ten days ago in Europe, to be fair, it was it was still very serious here, but the situation was sort of slowly escalating. Um, we had yet to see the cancellation of even MIP TV, which is another TV conference run by Read Me Dem in, in Cannes. Um, that was canceled about you know seven days ago, so it's really been in the last week. But but nevertheless, still the fact that you know they were obviously <laughs> so bullish about. Um, going ahead with the festival and not taking uh, taking that that buyback offer uh, is is pretty extraordinary. Do you have any more insight into why the festival decided not to buy the insurance, even though it required an additional payment on top of their premium? I personally think that perhaps ten days ago, uh, as I said, I think in Europe this was a slightly different picture, and we hadn't yet seen the cancellation of MIP TV. We hadn't yet seen you know, some of the other festival closures that we have, you know, all, all across Europe, really, like the Prague today, Thessaloniki, like it's it's been one after the other, really. But we hadn't really seen that 10 days ago. It was still very much like global outbreak that was <laughs> that was that was somewhere else. Perhaps that was short sighted. But I think um, it's only become real in the last in that period of time. And, and I'm sure, you know, if if they had been offered that uh, buyback option, um, you know, this week, for example, I'm sure it would be a slightly different story. But, but I'm, I, I think it was a, probably a miscalculation on their part, and um, the timings of it just really were not in their favor. The other thing that I think is important to note is that Cannes plays a very important role in kind of international film releases. And Parasite, the winner of the Best Picture Oscar and three other Academy Awards, premiered at Cannes. So Cannes is also really important in terms of what happens through the rest of the film year. The Toronto, Venice, and Telluride festivals kind of set up the fall, but Cannes has a very special place in the global film world. It's absolutely true. I mean, and, you know, in terms of the the big parasite, I mean, to see that 
film's journey from Cannes to the Oscars, um, you know, that was a real, that's a real sort of badge of honor, I think, for the festival this year. Um, you know, they can point to the fact that Parasite's journey began in Cannes. That's a huge thing. And the fact that they're, they were riding high uh, into the spring of this festival uh, with the momentum of the Oscars was a, was a big thing for them. Um, Cannes is, is, is the, the global springboard for so many films um, that, that slowly then, you know, there's almost like a, a sort of a snowballing, um, snowball sort of effect going into, into the fall and, and uh, Venice and Telluride and, and Toronto. Um, one thing we may see, obviously, depending how a lot of this shapes up, is, you know, films that um, uh, perhaps bypass can will will maybe look ahead to you know festivals like like Venice or, or indeed Toronto um, you know Marriage Story for example actually because it was a Netflix film it bypassed Cannes and it played Venice I mean perhaps you know perhaps we we may see a boon for some of the other the fall festivals provided that this the outbreak is controlled in the next few months I mean who knows it could it could very well continue for a certain period of time. Minori Ravindran is the international editor at Variety. She joined us from London. Minori, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, John. Coming up on The Frame, the title of a new movie is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, and those words are critical to the young woman at the center of the story. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. It's rare that a movie being released by a Hollywood studio coincides with a related Supreme Court case, but that's what's happening with the Focus Features film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. The Supreme Court heard arguments Wednesday. It's the first abortion case to reach the high court since conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh was appointed by President Trump. The Louisiana law at issue would require doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of their abortion. If this court were to uphold that law, all three of Louisiana's abortion clinics would have to close. The movie is arriving in theaters a week after the court heard arguments in a case called June Medical Services versus Russ. Access to abortion is a key plot point and never, rarely, sometimes, always. The movie tells the story of a pregnant teenage girl who has to leave her hometown in rural Pennsylvania to find medical care. The movie is written and directed by Eliza Hittman. I met her at the Sundance Film Festival, where her film premiered. I first had the seed for the idea for the film in 2012, and I was editing my first feature, which premiered here, called It Felt Like Love, and I was reading the news, and a woman named Savita Halepanaver died in a hospital in Galway um, after being denied a life-saving abortion, and it you know, really stunned and devastated me. And I started thinking about how far she would have had to travel to save her own life. And I bought a book called Ireland's Hidden Diaspora and was reading about women who would travel from Ireland to London and back in 24 hours to get an abortion. And I thought, oh, there's a movie in there. 
And it's important to note that Ireland, until very recently, very recently. had incredibly restrictive abortion rules. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, overturned last year. So Ireland is not where this story is set? It's not. But in 20, you know, 2012, 2013, I wrote two treatments for a film that explored this untold journey. And one took place in Ireland. And then I asked myself, what is the U.S. equivalent of this journey? So it wasn't hard to, you know, begin to research and explore, you know, what it's like to go from a rural area in this country to an urban area. I want to ask you about writing your lead character, Autumn, Mm -hmm. who is 17 in the film, correct? Correct. She lives in rural Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. to... You know, some people's minds, she wouldn't be highly educated. She doesn't have access to a lot of things that people with means and education might have in a big city. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, she is a little bit disenfranchised when the story begins. Mm -hmm. And that is an important part of the story, isn't it? Correct. So what is she facing beyond what she's facing, which is that she's pregnant with a child she doesn't want to have. Mm-hmm. What are the other obstacles she faces in terms of access to information or healthcare uh-huh. or well, anything? Well, part of the, the research for the film, and there was an, an extensive amount of research done. And when I say research, I don't mean compiling information or statistics. I mean, you know, me going out into the world to get as best an understanding for what her circumstance would be. So uh, my partner and I who edited the film, who's very entrenched in everything I do, Scott Cummings, we drove, you know, two or three hours outside of the city and watched the landscape change and saw how quickly the world changed by going into a small coal coal mining region of Pennsylvania. And I went to local pregnancy centers and I took pregnancy tests. And I tried to have conversations with the women who worked there and went through their counseling sessions and wanted to create as much of an authentic depiction of what a center in a small town would be like so that I could write those scenes with credibility. Are you pregnant at the time? Not pregnant, but they do the counseling session while the test is processing. So let's talk about these counseling sessions yes. because depending on where you go and it may not be clear from the sign out front, yeah. you could be walking into a place that might be, say, more aligned with the ideology of Planned Parenthood uh-huh. or, or you could be walking into a place no that's more aligned with Operation Rescue. And there's no way to know if you Rescue. were young and vulnerable or if you were vulnerable. There was, there's no way to know the difference. And yet, if you go into the latter, if you go into a clinic that is anti-abortion, something might happen. And it happens in your film, and that is you're given two pieces of information. Mm -hmm. One is bad information Mm -hmm. about how far along you are. And the second piece of information is going to be information trying to persuade you not to have an abortion. Correct. Is that something that was part of your research? Yes. And the conversation was skewed towards adoption. Um, and you know, you're, you're meeting with somebody who is dressed in medical scrubs, but have no, you know, license to practice. So, you know, I went to a range of them. 
you know, I went to multiple centers to just have, you know, the best understanding. They're all a little bit different. Um, and the experience was a little bit different in each of them. But they are layman individuals giving information and performing ultrasounds. We're talking with Eliza Hittman about her film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. When people go to the doctors, they're often given binary questions, yes, no questions. Mm -hmm. You know, have you ever had this? Mm -hmm. Do you suffer from that? Mm -hmm. But there's a sequence in this film that involves a series of questions where the choices to the answer are never, rarely, sometimes, always. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you encountered in your research or where did that phrase come from? Yes, it did. It's actually on the form that they give out at Planned Parenthood. Um, And when I was talking with counselors, you know, I tried to play out scenarios. What would happen if a minor came in? You know, what would your concerns be? You know, what would be the most important things that you would want to discuss? about them in the, you know, 20 minutes before they have their abortion. And they, you know, they really stressed that they wanted to do this interpersonal violence counseling to understand, you know, the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy and to make sure that people understand, you know, that they're entitled to a healthy relationship Um, And they found that in being binary and asking yes or no, it didn't create a platform to open up a dialogue. And so they, they use what's called the Likert scale. And when I did this interview, I recorded it. And she said, you know, never, rarely, sometimes, always. And she went through the questions on the sheet with me. And there was something, you know, very lyrical and poetic about listening to this counselor repeat these questions to me um, and, you know, the possible answers. But that's really the beginning. And it's meant to open up a conversation. Autumn, when she goes on the road trying to find a place she can get an abortion, doesn't go by herself. She goes with a friend, a cousin, right, named Skylar. Mm -hmm. And this movie is really also about female friendship Mm -hmm. and female friendship when there is a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And it's a very understated friendship about what is shared, Mm -hmm. who is thankful, how friendship is appreciated. And in thinking about that and how you research teen friendship Mm -hmm. in those extraordinary circumstances, how did you approach telling that part of the story? You know, for me, I have memories of a lot of quiet or a a few in my past quiet subway rides with friends when I was a youth going to, you know, Planned Parenthood in Manhattan and just always remembered you kind of don't talk about the elephant. This is when you were going to get birth control or going with friends who were having abortions? Both, you know. Someone's panicked they have an STD, you know, when I was a teenager. So you've been thinking about this movie well before you started thinking about Ireland. No, I just, thought, I just is- thought about, you know, the elephants in the room and keeping somebody company along the way. And, you know, that was really my approach to exploring them. And I didn't want Skylar's character to be this like precocious, you know, hero. They're just two young people navigating a world with all these invisible obstacles. And it was about them being together more than her having every right answer. What can a narrative film say about a subject like this that a documentary can't? 
Um, well, I think, you know, in documentaries, it's very rare to find women who want to talk about that experience. Um, and, you know, I was also really inspired by this documentary that was here um, in 2013 called After Tiller. That's about, you know, the, the sort of last late term abortion doctors who are practicing in this country. We should say George Tiller was a American obstetrician who was murdered in yes, 2009. Correct. And one thing that struck me was how faceless, it's a phenomenal documentary, but also none of the women in the situation wanted to have their faces on screen. So for me, I think um, because of the shame, I think it's hard to get documentary subjects to come forward about what their experiences are. Um, and to me, the film puts a face to the subjects, you know, that this issue really affects. Eliza Hitman is the writer and director of Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. It comes out on March 13th. Eliza, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Coming up on The Frame, we go inside LA's first Spanish language moth story slam. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Tonight at a bar in Silver Lake, people of all stripes will step up to the mic, tell personal stories, and compete for the honor of winning. It's a regular event held by the popular storytelling showcase, The Moth. And as is usually the custom, the stories tonight will be told in English. But recently, in another part of L.A., The Moth did something special its first Spanish-language story slam in the city. The Frame contributor Marcos Nahra has this report. Once upon a time, a group of friends used to sit outside at night on a back porch in Georgia. They'd swap stories until the wee hours, while moths flitted around the bright porch light. And so, those star-filled nights gave us the storytelling phenomenon called the moth. Now, you might already know it from the popular Moth Radio Hour that you can tune into right here on KPCC. Or, if you're brave enough, you might even show up at one of their live events somewhere in the world and tell your own story. Here's Natalie, live at the Moth. I'm a preschool teacher, and I get a lot of experience taking things out of people's hands. (laughs) At these story slams, there's a theme. You toss your name into a hopper and ten people are drawn, and those ten get five minutes each to tell their story on stage without notes. It's like, I gotta do this moth if it's Spanish. I've never told a story in Spanish. So that's that's what made me come out tonight and, and, and perform my story. Eric Cabrera has been to Moss Story Slams before, but was never quite ready to drop his name in the hat. That is until tonight, where the moth is holding its first Spanish slam here in L.A. Uh, la oración se dice, uh, lo siento... We're in South Central at a community organization named A Place Called Home. For Cabrera, it's a special place. They saved me from the streets and all, you know, 
being out there and doing the things that all my homeboys did, you know, God rest their soul or whatever. But I, I ended up going into finance. I work now in tech. Um, so I pretty much, I did well for myself, but now I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to be this writer, so. Over time, he's learned to turn his troubled past into rich tales. Cabrera told the audience about his life with a violent father who taught him to accept abuse from other men in his life, like a boyfriend after Cabrera came out as gay. And I had to translate it through Google because there were certain words in English that I just couldn't remember in Spanish. That's why I didn't want to go first. I kind of wanted to gauge if there was fellow pochos or pochas in the room because if there were, I was like, okay, I'm cool. I'm going to be able to, I'm going to be able to uh, do this too. So if I mess up a little bit, I won't feel as bad. <laughs> okay, a quick translation. To be pocho or pocha basically means you are a Latino person who speaks English as their first language. Spanish is your second language, so you might make mistakes along the way. And that can leave you open for lighthearted ridicule from friends and family. I think it's natural the way we speak. I think it's, it's, we're so used to saying, oh, you know, my parents were always like, only, solo vas a hablar español o solo vas a hablar en inglés. That's Jesenia Chavez, another storyteller from the slam. But I think what we're embracing that, especially the younger generation is embracing just being fluid between languages and not, not having to limit ourselves in our, in our communication because I don't have the perfect word or I don't know the word in one language or the other. Yo soy de aquí de sureste de Los Angeles, Maywood, Park, Bell. Los, los Chavez told a story about growing up in South L.A., where a well-meaning teacher took her and her elementary school friends to compete in a tournament they weren't ready for, in a place that wasn't ready for them. We were all in it together as poor brown girls in this really privileged white space that was a cheerleading competition. <laughs> I wasn't going to sign up because I was feeling not ready. I didn't prepare anything. But when he said there was only nine people, I said, you know, I have nothing to lose. I love telling stories. I, I'm a poet. I'm a writer. I'm a teacher, elementary school teacher. So I think I'm a natural storyteller because of that. But, you know, there's nine people. Well, let me just make it ten. <laughs> Last minute. I felt really connected and like I felt like there was a lot of community. For Jennifer Hickson, one of the Moth Senior Directors, these are the stories that have gone missing. When we were just talking about how can we reach more communities, how can we hear from people that we don't hear from. Hickson and her team back in New York decided they needed to carve out space for more voices in more languages beyond English. If the, we can't get the people to come to us, we need to go to them, we need to go into their communities. Boy, Los Angeles, especially. Yeah. Back at a place called home, Cabrera won first place at the Moss inaugural L.A. Spanish Slam. He'll now move on to compete against other winners from other slams. But for now, he says this night was already perfect. I, I feel really, really great at the end of the story when I hear people, like during the break, like, thank you for your story, because that's what I live for. I live for making connections and starting conversations. So, And it's my first time. <laughs> so it was really cool. For The Frame, yo soy Marcos Najera. And that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn at the Moon Broadcast Center. And remember, you can catch every episode of The Frame by subscribing to our podcast. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.
As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.